You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has written all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that, thy, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm going to try to talk loudly so everyone can hear me. Uh, I, I'm not blessed with the, with the sonorous voice of N.T. Wright, uh, but I'm going to try. So the title of this is called Saving St. Paul from the Academy. Uh, it's mostly paper form, so I'll try to be funny where possible. The Academy is a term used by both insiders and outsiders to speak about the world of biblical scholarship. It is a term meant to ascribe prestige and importance to one's profession and life work. Um, no one wants to do something that doesn't matter, right? So you give yourself lofty t uh, titles like the guild. To be part of the guild is to be part of an elite club of professionals trapped by the professional need to justify their significance. But to most people, the academy is a term of intimidation to create a feeling of inadequacy on the part of the so-called non-specialist layperson thus making the Bible and faith itself feel like something you're not qualified to have an opinion about. Along the same lines, the last 40 plus years of Pauline scholarship, with its almost iconoclastic radicalism, has so thoroughly revised the traditional Protestant understanding of Paul that many, if not most, feel unable to understand the Bible at all. So I've got three goals. First, I hope to offer a pointed critique at recent interpreters of Paul and their overall practice of interpretation, particularly those within what is known as the new perspective on Paul, as well as uh, I take one little aside at the imperial Paul or anti-imperial Paul. By way of critical historical inquiry, these scholars ironically offer an allegorical reading of Paul by constantly reconstructing what St. Paul really said and overlooking what he actually said. Secondly, I hope to offer uh, a positive vision for how to read the Bible, one that views it not as a riddle to be solved by the specialist, but as a conversation partner that wants to be charitably heard on its own terms without being over-interpreted. Finally, I will examine Galatians 3, 24 to 25 and offer some uh, uh, modest uh, self-reflection on how Paul has been understood by Luther and Mockingbird by extension. I thought it would be a fun thing to do. We've never really done anything with the new perspective. Uh, JD had a post like 10 years ago, and uh, we haven't revisited the topic since. So I thought it'd be fun to do that for this kind of retrospective 10 years of grace thing. So part one, the allegorical Paul of the Academy. Most basically, to allegorize a text is to claim that the words of the text are significant only in as much as they mean something else than what they say. The words of the text are signs that point to another truth that lies beyond the text, thereby discarding the text itself for that truth. Here the text is a cipher that 
perhaps, or a remote control of a video game. Having established the necessary correspondence between the words of a text and the truth to which it points, the successful allegorical interpretation ironically replaces the text, even as it appears to be reading it. This is precisely what occurs in much of the recent Pauline scholarship. Under the banner of historical scholarship, the words of Paul are coordinated with the lexical world of the first century in such a way that the words of Paul himself are unwittingly discarded. I think a few examples will il well illustrate the point. So this is point 1A, the righteousness of God. Paul writes in Romans 1, 16-17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous by faith will live. In the preface to his Latin works published in 1545, the old man Luther almost nostalgically describes the origin of his life's work and the Reformation by extension. For, for Luther, the eureka moment occurred through his struggle over Romans 1.17 and the meaning of the phrase righteousness of God. Having been taught to understand this phrase as a quality of God, the God's active righteousness, whereby he judges the sinner, uh, Luther uh, despaired, basically. The turn in Luther's thought, or the great Reformation insight came, when he recognized that all he, all he knew was wrong. The righteousness of God is not an active attribute of God, but should rather be understood as righteousness from God, a gift. The passive righteousness re received in faith. In this discovery, Luther reports, I felt myself reborn carried through the portals into paradise itself. Luther here was moved between two grammatical possibilities of the Greek text offered by its genitive of God. That's as much Greek as you're going to get, by the way. <laughs> His discovery proved highly influential for later Protestantism, binding together righteousness and faith as the means by which sinners might have peace with a holy God who judges unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 Later 20th century interpreters of Paul revisited and reversed Luther's discovery, seeing the righteousness of God as a quality or characteristic of God. God is righteous. But rather than seeing God's righteousness expressed through the punishment of sinners, the righteousness itself, language itself has under, undergone a radical redefinition by way of historical recontextualization. Uh, the first interpreter I will uh, look at, I, I do with some trepidation because Fleming Rutledge is right before me. Uh, <laughs> it's not her. <laughs> the first interpreter, who in many ways ironically represents a forerunner to the new perspective, is the mid-20th century scholar Ernst Kaysemann. Kaysemann is a proverbial case in the rejection of father figures. Someone who made his career on rejecting pretty much everything his mentor, Rudolf Bultmann, taught him. That was meant to be funny. <laughs> For Kazamon, the righteousness of God is not simply a gift. The righteousness of God is also a power. When God gives, he comes into the arena through God's saving power. For Kazamon, the righteousness of God was a fixed formula in a po Jewish apocalyptic tradition, describing, describing the sovereign agency of God and the battlefield of the world. Having identified this linguistic background within Jewish apocalypticism, 
Paul's usage is then made to conform to this background as a solution to its apparent ambiguity. Kaysman's writings became foundational for what is now known as the apocalyptic school of Paul, principally in America through J. Louis Martin, uh, up in Union. Its adherents are legion. <laughs> and it, <laughs> that was also another <laughs> Apocalyptic people love to talk about uh, a world which is, which is filled with uh, cosmic powers. So that was a reference to, what is your name? Legion. Um, and it represents one of a handful of trends within current scholarship. Another trend is to be represented by the super abundantly prolific scholar, N.T. Wright. Rather than apocalyptic as the hidden framework for Paul's discourse, Wright argues that God's covenant with Israel is paper. Uh, that God's covenant with Israel is uh, un, is the unspoken foundational framework, appealing to an abundance of Old Testament texts. Accordingly, the righteousness of God for Wright is God's covenantal faithfulness. To be righteous then is one's status for covenantal membership. The one who is justified is the one who is in the covenant. Covenant is positively everywhere for right. Something that is striking despite the almost total absence of the word from Paul, Paul's letters. If right contends that God's covenantal faithfulness is what Paul really said, it is perhaps more accurate to say that covenant is what Paul rarely said. Despite their vast differences. Oh, that was a slow burn. I love it. Despite their vast differences theologically, and they are many, <laughs> uh, there is a surprising similarity between Wright and Kaysman on how they interpret Paul. For both, antecedent usage of righteousness language establishes the meaning of righteousness for Paul. One's understanding of Paul does not depend upon Paul himself, but the background selected to determine Paul's mind. So, A. Point B, works of the law. Another battleground. Galatians 2.16b, We have believed in Christ Jesus in order that we might be justified from faith in Christ and not from works of the law. So I want to talk this little phrase. So the, Paul's construction, justified by faith in Christ, not negation, works of the law. So the understanding of what works of the law means here for Paul has long been a debated point in the church. If Luther thought works of the law to be moral and, and ceremonial precepts of, of the law, understood more broadly as good works, Jerome and Pelagius believed the term to refer more exclusively to ceremonial aspects of the law, circumcision, Sabbath, dietary laws. What's at stake in this debate is the valuation of the doing of the law and its relative worth before God. If Paul's criticisms are only directed to, toward the ceremonial practices of the law, then we have a lot of work to do, so to speak. The position of Pelagius and Jerome was revived most recently by the British scholar James Dunn, uh, or Jimmy as he is called by everyone else. Uh, writing in 1984, he contended against Luther that works of the law means nationalistic Jewish boundary markers that divide Jew and Greek, particularly, ready, circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath observance. He, he writes, quote, 
the phrase works of the law in Galatians 2.16 is a fairly restrictive one. It refers precisely to these same identity markers described above, covenant works. To be a Jew was to be a member of the covenant, was to observe circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath. Paul has no issue to the law per se for done, only the reliance upon circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath observance for one's identity. To rely on works of the law is to rely on being Jewish and what makes you distinctively Jewish for Dunn. Dunn was introduced to the writings of the sociologist Hans Mahl, specifically the book Identity in the Sacred, and Dunn swallowed it whole. Mahl wrote about religious identity and how it interfaces with the world, hypothesizing that it is precisely the dividing boundary between the two which constitutes the distinctive identity of the religion, i.e. how a religion is different from the world at large in its particular ways are how become all important for that group. You can hear the echoes coming on. For Judaism, these were circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath observance. Dunn believes Paul's usage of the term works of the law follows Hans Mahl's theory and is parallel, if not ante uh, to the antecedent usage in the Dead Sea Scrolls fragment, 4QMMT. In this text, quote, works of the law denoted a sectarian understanding of the law, denoted indeed the sect's distinctive understanding and practice of the law. Works of the law, therefore, was probably used initially in a polemical context to denote particularly those obligations of the law which, uh, which were reckoned especially crucial in the maintenance of covenantal religion. In practice, the faithfulness of the sectarian was determined by his demonstration of, of the loyalty of the sect's distinctive interpretations. So too, here's the interesting point, so too in Second Temple Judaism at large. The Dead Sea Scrolls we found, right, by the Dead Sea, way away from everywhere else. He takes this little fragment and says, all of Judaism thought this, right? So too in Judaism at large. And therefore, this is the antece necessary antecedent usage for Paul's usage for Dunn. So for Dunn, why does he critique the law? Because it is too restrictive for Paul's universal vision of Christianity that encompasses both Jew and Greek. There's no theological significance to Paul's critique of the law. Theology here is exchanged for the horizon of Christian uh, church social practice. Now note the line of argumentation Dunn makes. Having found parallel usage of Paul's terminology, terminology within Second Temple Judaism, he then transfers that contextual meaning onto Paul. What appears to be a clarification of Paul's usage is actually an allegorical substitution. Dunn unwittingly acknowledges this point when commenting on the same theme in his later Romans commentary. Here he argues that Paul's language necessitates a, quote, hidden middle term, which he defines as the function of the law as an identity uh, factor, the social function of the law marking out of the people of the law in their distinctiveness, circumcision, food laws, etc. Dunn believes this hidden middle term can be taken for granted by Paul because it was just so obvious to everyone else. Works of the law then, therefore, for Dunn, are not works of the law as such, but works of the 
uh, nationalistic identity markers law. Do you see the, the kind of substitution which is happening? A similar move is made more recently by Bridget Call, though her portrait of Paul is vastly different than Dunn's. For Call, the crisis in Galatia to which Paul speaks is not Torah observance for its own sake, but obedience to the law to regularize their social position within the imperial Roman order by becoming Jews. This requires a little bit of unpacking that I don't have a ton of time for, but I'll explain a little bit. Um, Jews were given something of, a, of an exemption within Roman law uh, in a number of different ways. There was, because they were um, old and their antiquity of their religion was respected in that way, there wasn't necessarily uh, the same expectations for them to participate in civic society. So by becoming circumcised, Call is saying that they are submitting to the Roman expectation and thereby exempting themselves from persecution, right? Romans don't know what to do with Christians, but they know about Jews. So if you just look more Jewish, you'll be fine. That's okay. Um, so to be circumcised as a Jew is to exempt oneself from participation in the imperial cult, worship of the emperor and therefore avoid persecution. Within this supposed context, the phrase works of the law is to be understood as works of the parentheses imperial law, or the law of the empire, and submission to Roman law. She succinctly states, the law of Paul, the law Paul confronts, is not the Jewish law as such, but Jewish law in enforced servitude to Roman law. Like Dunn, Call argues for a hidden middle term within Paul's discourse, which is be, to be explained by way of allegory. The words of Paul mean something else altogether. Like Dunn, it is the historical context which provides the supposed hidden middle term, which would have been so obvious to any first century reader of Galatians. Point two, reading with charity. Uh, because this is Mockingbird, I feel obliged to have a pop culture reference. So here we go. <laughs> this is uh, from Mumford and Sons. Uh, this is never going to go our way if I'm going to have to guess what's on your mind. Thank you. <laughs> to substitute a hidden middle term for written text may sound like good historical inquiry at first glance. The meaning of words in antiquity is not always an obvious one, nor is it exactly what we would mean by, the, by them. And part of the job of any interpreter who wishes to exceed the limitations offered by big, thick lexicons made in the mid-20th century is to examine parallel usages within the same time frame. So, for example, that I uh, gave a pop culture reference, right? Um, requires a whole set of, of common shared assumptions. That you know who Mumford and Sons is, that you know what music is, you know what lyrics are, uh, that, and, and this and sort of historical study is a way of trying to get at all of those unspoken common linguistic uh, frameworks. Yet this lexical exchange of meaning within Paul's text, and it's for its supposed real meaning, under the auspices of doing history is more than, than a, an illegitimate totality transfer, I'm referencing James Barr um, painfully, but an illegitimate totality effacement of the text. 
So what might this mean for the two examples above? Righteousness of God, works of the law. It means reading Paul and taking him at his word. It means the act of reading is itself an act of faith working through love, entrusting oneself to Paul's text in the hopes that it might have something intelligible to say to us. Now, this is true of person-to-person -person, uh, conversation, which is why I, say, I begin with the Mumford & Sons quote. If I'm, uh, I'm going <laughs> to... All right, uh, don't... Uh, this is never going to go our way if I'm going to have to guess what's on your mind. If you're talking with someone and you never know exactly what, they're, what they mean by what they say, if you're always having to infer some sort of uh, context, if you're always having to infer ulterior motives or good motives, if what they say is clearly not what they mean and you're always having to get behind what they say to something, some ulterior reality, then you're never going to fall in love with that person, right? Or you're never going to be friends with that person. You'll probably think they're kind of a jerk because, you, because what they say isn't what they mean. Now, they're not lying to you, but they might be. Same thing with texts. The act of uh, correspondence between person and text is an encounter analogous to person to person. It is the text, we ask a question of the text, and the text responds in kind, correcting our question sometimes, sometimes answering our question, but it's a mutual exchange back and forth between person and text that requires, requires faith working through love. A faith that this text actually has something to say. And we know it has something to say because we still have it, right? Texts that, that don't say anything tend to not get copied, tend to be buried, tend to be burned, no longer forgotten from the face of the earth. The church has always turned to Paul and will always hear from Paul in the future. What is true of person-to-person -person relations is true of Paul. If we allow Paul to speak for himself, we might be surprised by what we find. Paul does, in fact, allow antecedent usage to determine what he means by both righteousness and works of the law. But these are not hidden from the reader. They are signaled by Paul himself. So look to Paul to answer what Paul says. So when Paul brings up righteousness of God language, what's the quote? He says, For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the one who uh, is righteous by faith will live. He's quoting here from Habakkuk 2.4. And in quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, he's signaling to the reader what he means by righteousness. What does righteousness do? It is, the, it is the necessary condition for one to receive life. And how does that happen? By faith. Right? There is a causal connection between faith, righteousness, and life. It is what is needed by God for life. How is one righteous? Faith. Um, Paul's righteousness language is in fact defined by his faith language in most instances. Likewise for works of the law. When Paul speaks of works of the law, elsewhere he references another antecedent text. He references Leviticus 18.5. And, and this for Paul is the kind of his maxim for what he means by the law and the problem of the law. 
the one who does these things will live by them. This is, his, this is what he's doing. Leviticus 18.5. So there's a nexus, again, between doing these things, the law, and living. So doing the law to life. So that uh, the life that one receives eschatologically is on the basis of, or, or uh, gosh, I'm getting into reform term terminology. I want to avoid that. It's, it, it is received in conjunction with, in congruence with, one's doing of the law. So there's a causality between doing and living. And why does Paul have a problem with the law? Because it requires doing. He sets these two quotes in opposition to one another in Galatians. The law is not of faith. What is, for what is, what is faith say? Uh, for the one, who, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. What does the law say? The one who does these things shall live. Both have the same output, don't they? Life. One is faith. One is doing of law. These are two antithetical patterns of religion for Paul. And that, that, that is how he determines his language. If you dig within Paul, not to discover some hidden meaning, but to allow himself to reveal himself to you as you read uh, in, in faithful charity, you'd be surprised what you will find. Okay, Galate, uh, point three. Uh, so this is, this is the point where I have the most amount of fear um, because Luther is, is something of a hero of mine. And so this is just something I... And, we, and Mockingbird has a uh, publication called Two Words, so this will become clear. So Galatians 3, 24 to 25. Therefore the law was our pedagogue until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But faith having come, after having come, we are no longer under a pedagogue. Now, within uh, theolo theology, there's often this thing called uh, distinctions of the uses of the law between the first, second, and third. Uh, and basically, there's a huge debate about whether or not they're two or three. All that matters is that there is this category of things called uses of the law for Christians. Uh, uses of the law either in judging or revealing you how, how, to, how, to, how to live. And that's part of the debate. This de derives this position from this text, from Galatians. So commenting on these verses in his 1535 commentary, Luther says, the law is a specialist to bring us to Christ. With the law's lashings, it is only too anxious to drive us to Christ. The law is like a good schoolmaster, which is another way of understanding pedagogue. A schoolmaster who trains his children to find pleasure in doing things they formerly detested. The law means to enlarge my sins, to make me small, in order that I may be justified by faith in Christ. For Luther, on the basis of Galatians 3, 24-25, the law has an instrumental function towards salvation. It condemns you of your sin, and in, your, and in the feeling of condemnation, the word of forgiveness and grace has real power has real uh, uh, release to create uh, f uh, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And this is, for Luther, the second use of the law, the law which judges just before the, the word of grace comes to release you. 
Now, what undergirds his uh, interpretation as it relates to Christians in particular is actually a very sophisticated theological anthropology, uh, which is a way of saying um, his understanding of humanity, <laughs> whereby the voice of the law is efficaciously directed to the part of myself which is unconverted uh, and still of the flesh. But this timeless eternal significance of the law um, betrays something of Paul's own usage. Paul's belief in the temporal nature of the law as a pedagogue, which, can, which repeatedly uh, contends, Paul does, that Christians are not under the law. Let me see. Paul repeatedly says, not once, three times, I'm going I'm to read you, that Christians are not under the law. So in Galatians 3.25, But faith, having come, we are no longer under a pedagogue, i.e. the law. Or Romans 16.14, You are not under law, but under grace. There's a parallel usage. You are either under law or under grace. You are no longer under law. You are instead under grace, namely Christ. Christ, Romans 10.4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So instead of a debate between two or three uses of the law, Paul doesn't seem to have any use of the law. If the letter kills and the Spirit uh, gives life, then we who are already dead in our sin have no need of the law. The law increaseth the trespass. The law rules uh, the body of death. If, if it diagnoses our sin and accuses us, Romans 7, it simultaneously is the power of sin and enslaves us, Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We do not need the law. We desperately need the gospel. The dividing line for Paul that, that runs through the entire human race is not between law-abiding and unlaw-abiding, or even between sin and righteousness as uh, defined in moral terms, but rather between faith and unfaith. Those who are alive and those who are dead. Paul's ethics, in fact, rather than being founded upon the law, are instead um, uh, pneumatically inspired by the spirit conforming to uh, conforming to the life, death, and the pattern of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Right? Walk, uh, that's, gosh, that's First John. Walk in love as Christ loved us. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, have this mind among you, that though, uh, that though being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited, but made himself nothing becoming the form of a servant. This is the life, death, and resurrection as being that which is the pattern upon which Christian life and activity should live. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Another Galatians text. If there is a movement in Paul, movement of, of the self, of one's existential uh, self-understanding, and, and, and within his proclamation, if we're to do something, it is not... Uh, I, again, the fear. Uh, it's not from law to gospel, but is movement from sin and death to life and reconciliation. The way this happens, of course, is through grace. 
Paul describes in pointed terms the reality of death and the sin in everyday life and speaks of Christ's word of promise and grace is that which gives life to our mortal bodies. This movement is often parallel to a kind of good law gospel preaching. Life under the law is indeed unbearable, as Romans 7, as Romans 7 uh, aims to illustrate. And in creating that crisis of, of what it feels like to be under the law, as an oct as a, there, is, there is obviously parallels between Paul's own discussion of sin and death. But to speak of the law as an active operation of God in the world now raises more questions than, and, than it might answer and perhaps creates more problems theologically. For example, undermining the gospel as a kind of bait and switch or creating an understanding of God who is unreliable in the same breath that God judges, God forgives. It creates a portrait of God, which may be, um, which is a kind, of, a kind of split personality or mixed messages. Now, how do you then preach? How, uh, preaching, uh, what does it mean to preach from death to resurrection? What it means is it means describing life as we actually live it, lived within the scope and framework of failed life of listening to false promises, of uh, the death that is our life in our failure, of the, our own weakness to achieve the life we want for ourselves. And in the word of the, of the gospel, which provides forgiveness and liberation and rescue from the, de the body of death that we have. Um, there are many things for which we rightly feel guilty for. And there are many things which uh, Paul does have a category of guilt. Don't misunderstand me. Um, but it's a guilt which is, has to, which is defined principally as unfaith and faith. As conforming one's life to the pattern of, of Jesus' of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection as, as engendered by the gifting of the Spirit. And that which looks like the, the opposite. Rivalry, bitterness, conceit, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so that's all I have for you. <laughs> um, yeah.